All right. Um, uh, so here we go, right? You've been set up now, and, and now you're thinking, well, he's brought us through all these exercises, and now he's going to tell us that, um, you know, whatever our denomination decides or whatever my congregation decides or whatever people decide on my behalf about what I should believe, I just got to be happy about it and get along with everybody. So I'm not going to do that. Um, that is not what I'm going to do. But uh, what I do want to do um, uh, is, in a sincere way, look at this question. Since we've been looking at the question about what the Bible says about other things, what does the Bible say? Can we discern the Scripture's word for us about uh, how we should regard uh, those Christians or non-Christians uh, with whom we have uh, disagreements? So the way I uh, put the question, what does the Bible say about getting along with people uh, who don't read the Bible the same way I do. Um, it's it's uh, 10 after 1 right now. Here's what I propose, uh, that we go to 2 o'clock, and uh, then we'll take a break, a uh, coffee break. So that, that's what's scheduled, right? And then maybe at 10 after 2, uh, call everyone back, anyone who's still around, and um, uh, you know we'll, we'll go for another half hour or so, and then I'll dismiss quarter to 3, 3, depending on the energy of the room. And if there are people who still want to have conversations... Um, definitely you're welcome to stay. Does that sound okay? Okay. Uh, any other announcements, Jim, about handouts are out there? Dave, everything good? Okay. Um, so uh, we're going to consider the, the last mat, uh, matter, how to proceed in the midst of differences in biblical interpretation. I hope at least we've established that, that uh, in this thing we call the body of Christ, you know, this two billion uh, uh, part body. There's, there's a guy who's uh, tried to count the number of Christians around the world and put them in denominations. And he's come up, he's, he's out of the United Kingdom. He's come up with uh, about 30,000 different uh, uh, Christian groups. Uh, 30,000. That is, you know, uh, there's a leader and the buck stops there. That's one group. And it could be just one church. Uh, and the biggest group would be uh, all of the churches under the Roman bishop, the Roman Catholic Church, which makes up half of Christendom, about one billion. So he's identified the Roman Church as one of 30,000 Christian groups, and then all these other Christian groups, some of them are just you know, a church under themselves without any other connections, uh, to, uh, any other formal connections to another Christian body. So the ELCA would be one of those Christian groups. Missouri Synod would be one of those Christian groups. Um, you have some churches leaving the ELCA now, and the churches that d- decide to stay independent, uh, they would be considered a Christian group. The ones that join together and to form a new group, they would be considered a Christian group. So he's identified 30,000 of these uh, around the world. That's a lot. So it, it suggests at least that um, one of the challenges in Christianity presently uh, uh, is, is unity, at least formal or visible unity in terms of authority structure. Um, So let's say on the subject of uh, baptism or the Lord's Supper, you do not read the Bible the same way that another believer reads it. Um, That's a given. And maybe you can even think about somebody who you have a disagreement with in terms of how Scripture should be interpreted on a given subject. And maybe that person that you're thinking about is someone... Uh, you don't like very much because of this disagreement, right? The disagreement has created hard feelings. You know, that's, that's what I'm talking about here. Uh, let's say that on, on, on subject of baptism or large supper or really any subject, um, uh, you have a disagreement with somebody 
and it's one that hurts a little bit, one that you can get emotional about. What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about how you ought to uh, regard such a person, get along with such a person, or to what extent you should get along, um, what kind of fellowship uh, you might have? Um, what does the Bible say are the minimum requirements in your regard for that person? Um, and what are the maximum requirements, right? How far, uh, you know, what is expected of you? You know, I'm thinking of uh, Peter's question. How many times should I forgive, Lord? Once, twice? Right, that's what I'm thinking of, right? And what's Jesus' answer? Depending on the translation, right? Uh, seven, seven times 70 times or 77 uh, times seven. A lot. So that's, you know, that's the, the, the other part of this question. Um, in, in these difficult things regarding the, our relationships with other Christians, especially the ones we might not like very much, uh, what is expected of us? What is being taught out of the scripture? Um, I want to propose uh, the question uh, in these three forms. Uh, what does the Bible say about the way you might or ought to regard the person with whom you have a disagreement over a matter of biblical interpretation? What does the Bible say about the way you might or ought to have fellowship with that person? See the difference? One is, how do you regard such a person? That is, what's your attitude toward that person? Uh, the other one is, how do you connect or fellowship or be in community with that person? Okay, so I'm just starting it on the individual level. And then the third question, uh, the third form of the question would be to sort of expand it to the group. What does the Bible say about the way you might or ought to have fellowship um, what does the Bible say uh, about the way one Christian group might or ought to have fellowship with a Christian group with whom there is disagreement over a matter of biblical interpretation? Right. So first individual, how are you supposed to regard the people you differ with and um, fellowship with them? And then the question applied to your group, whichever group you are a part of. Okay, so that's, that's the question I'm proposing, uh, the series of questions I'm proposing. So let's look at the scripture. Um, you, might, you might be thinking, well, I can sure think of those scripture verses about baptism and about uh, Lord's Supper, but really, are there really any scripture passages about this subject? Can you think of any? There's a lot. What's that? Oh, yeah, one... one um, uh, what do you do with the the, uh, n- the the unproductive tree, right? So uh, there's a number of these, but you could even do you know Jesus cursing the fig tree as probably an allegory of Israel uh, on his way to the cross. That's one interpretation of it that that Israel's uh, religious leaders had not been fruitful and and with the fig tree symbolic of that, it's going to wither and die. Um, so there's there's all these passages that have to do with with trees producing or not producing fruit. So we'll bring those in. Remember, the question is, how are you going to get along with people you don't agree with? Okay, what else? Maybe, uh, maybe just sort of broad areas. If you've got a specific verse, that's good. If you've got a section of scripture, that's good too. How about dining with the Pharisees? Dining with the Pharisees. Okay, so um, which, which passage do you have in mind? Okay. Okay. She's reading Luke 11:37. Uh, I'll just repeat it, Dave, uh, where, where Jesus goes and meets with a Pharisee, and Pharisees met with him. Right? Nicodemus came and met with him. So you have, you know, 
Jesus and the Pharisees weren't necessarily buddies, and you have an example here of Christ for talking about Jesus as a model. And there he is, and he goes and has and shares a meal with one of the religious leaders with whom he was in conflict. Okay, good. I love your neighbor as yourself and the Good Samaritan story. Love your neighbor as yourself uh, and the Good Samaritan story. So love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus is commenting uh, in a couple places. He's asked about you know, what's the greatest commandment. And he says, you should love the Lord with all your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the others like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that very basic teaching uh, is a good one to go to. And the Good Samaritan. Right? Here is the other, uh, the unclean, uh, half-breed, filthy other, the Samaritan. And um, who is the neighbor in the story? Um, oh, sorry, the, 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 you have the, the, the Samaritan, the, the filthy, unclean half-breed, is the neighbor, not the, not the Levi, not the priest. So you would, that's a parable that you could apply here. All right. I would like to propose that we look at any number of teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Okay, so um, it can be this, this teaching about reconciling with your brother. If you've got a beef with him, it could be um, uh, love your enemies, which is in the, in the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount. It could be uh, the series about, you know, turn the other cheek, give your neighbor the cloak, go the extra mile. Right, there's a number of things in the Sermon on the Mount that we might want to apply to this question. Yeah. Also in the Sermon on the Mount, if your eye causes you to uh, sin, pluck it out. Okay. So, here we go. Now, we have to, to be honest, right? We have to say, well, if we look at the New Testament, it's not all happy, happy, let's get along and, you know, buckle down, right? There are these other passages in the New Testament, we're going to find these two, that suggest that Sometimes you might have to speak a harsh word against the person who's saying something different. Sometimes you might have to separate yourself from uh, the person with whom you have a disagreement. Now, for that passage, you're making an interpretive leap a little bit, right? Typically, the way I understand that passage is interpreted in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Uh, the idea, typically, it's referring to the, the individual's body. But it is possible, as you're doing, and I've heard this before, to apply it to the corporate body, right, the assembly. And, and if there's something in the assembly that's causing the whole assembly to sin, remove that person. So I've heard that interpretation for this, too. But typically, it's, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If um, your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And there were people in the earlier years of the church who took that quite literally. Um, and, you know, origin, how many of you know the early church Father Origen, right? Good, good one. Okay, uh, let's turn to that one. Luke 9, 5, and the, the question was, um, how do we interpret this? This is the passage where the disciples are sent out, and um, if there's a problem, shake off the dust. Luke 9, verse 5. Yep. Okay, looking at the beginning of Luke 9. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor, ba- nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. 
Wherever they do not welcome you as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed. That actually happened to me one time when I was in Lodi. I was uh, in my office minding my own business, and my, uh, our church uh, secretary came in and said, uh, Pastor, there's uh, somebody here who wants to talk to you. I said, well, who is it? And she said, uh, I don't know. And I said, I'm not here. And she said, it's too late. Please talk to him. So in walks this guy uh, um, with, you know, three days shadow on his face. Um, he looked like a chimney sweep. That's the best way to describe him. Long and thin, uh, dark, tall hat, a dark suit. I mean, a suit and tattered and old and a dirty shirt underneath. Chimney sweep, right? Without the sweep. Um, and he starts talking to me about how uh, he was a prophet uh, sent by God to this place. And uh, he had a word of uh, a word from God um, uh, for this place. And uh, I said, okay, what is the word? And then he said, um, well, I need, I need support from my ministry. And, you know, um, the scripture says uh, it's not good to muzzle an ox. So he pulled that one out. And um, uh, he said, I, 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 after I'm through here uh, bringing the word, um, I need uh, bus fare and meal money um, for... Uh, um, passage to Sacramento, up to Sacramento. And I said, well, it just so happens we are part of an organization called Archway Shelter that can give you a bus pass to Sacramento and feed you and give you vouchers for food. He wasn't going to go for that. Um, he wanted me to fork over the cash. So we kind of got in this uh, argument and I kind of moved him out and, and, uh, and walked him out of the church building and out to the parking lot. And he walked away. And in the middle of the parking lot, he stopped, turned around, took off his shoe, one shoe, and uh, held it up against me and declared a curse on the congregation um, as, as a testimony or you know, whatever, it, whatever it said. So it was pretty wild. And uh, then the entire congregation collapsed just a couple of weeks after. No, it didn't. <laughs> I think they're still doing well. It, well, no, he just walked off, right? Maybe he didn't, maybe he didn't need it. I didn't have the bus pass. I actually had offered to drive him to Archway Shelter, which was three, three blocks away. And we'd done, we, we did that all the time with people. So, anyway, so that, that happened, right? So, uh, how would you apply this to the question, um, of a difference you might have with a brother or sister about a matter of interpretation? You know, is, is there a time when differences get so bad, uh, that you take off the shoe as a testimony against them? So how, how might that apply? Go ahead. Yep. Right. That's an important one. Yes. Right. Exactly. Uh, Matthew 18. I, th- I think we're going to find that with this question, there's a whole broad range of things that might be brought to bear, and um, uh, maybe an extra measure of discernment is necessary. Um, beyond what's necessary for questions like baptism or the Lord's Supper. Uh, There's so much stuff about how we are to regard each other, uh, sometimes uh, with the open arms of of fellowship, uh, but also sometimes of speaking a strong word against and maybe even breaking off fellowship. I think we're going to find in the New Testament that we've got both of this going on. When do we apply it in our context? This is one of the questions. So Matthew 18 actually has a program that some churches actually follow in sort of trying to move through these tough questions or these, these divisions, right? You were going to ask something, yeah. Um, the other, a part of the question is what is the degree, uh, what is the degree of heresy? Is it just 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's you know how, what's what's the, the the Lord's Supper question comes to bear there, especially right. You know, you can come and come into my church and listen to the sermon, but it can't have you uh, fellowship at the table. So right, where are the lines going to be drawn for fellowship? That's going to be another part of this. Uh, Matthew 18, though, this is you know I talked about you know trying to which verses are central and which verses do we want to use as a framework in proposing my own framework in my notes. Matthew 18 is one of them. Um, because it gets used so often uh, as, a, as a way to mediate, as a, as a, as a Jesus-introduced way to mediate uh, disagreements between people. So let's look at Matthew 18, uh, if you're not there. Um, uh, and there in Matthew 18, verse 8, you see the lines, that if your hand ca- uh, or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out, throw it away. Um, all right. Uh, 15, 18, verse 15. Can I read it? I'll read it. If another member of the church sins against you, um, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the assembly. I'm guessing that's the local assembly first. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So how does this work? Let's say that um, you are in uh, a congregation, maybe like this one. And uh, there's a fellow member uh, who says, I don't know about uh, infant baptism. And I, I think this whole thing of infant baptism is invalid. And therefore, I think your infant baptism is invalid. And you've got to you know, um, stand up and give your public testimony to faith, and then uh, we'll baptize you again. Um, is this a case where you... And, and that offends you so much that... Test. Testing, one, two, three. You're offended. And um, uh, uh, you, you, you follow this. You think, okay, instead of just having my feelings hurt, I'm going to look at Matthew 18 and try the program. Um, so you go to that person and uh, you say, um, uh, this, this is a sin uh, against me. You, you, have, you have said something false um, and you have uh, injured my person um, right where I live. Right? You, you, you have injured the very heart of my faith. Um, and I recognize this as a, as a sin and, and uh, I, I would just like some acknowledgement of that and then hopefully an apology. Um, so you get the apology and everything is good. But what if you don't get the apology? Um, what if the person says, oh, I'm sorry, but... Uh, no, this is the truth, the way I see it. What are you going to do next? Well, you're going to follow the program, and you're going to say, well, let's take you to two others, and you take them to a couple fellow members and say, go ahead and say what you said to me. And the person says, well, I think you're, um, you're really not a Christian, basically, because you were only baptized as an infant. And those people say, well, yeah, well, I can see how you would be hurt by that. Um, I can see why you deserve an apology. 
and the person still doesn't give it. And so then you bring them before the church council and the same thing. And the church council says, well, this is a Lutheran church. Look at our uh, documents. Um, our, our, our constitution says that we are to interpret the scripture according to um, uh, the Lutheran confessions. The Lutheran confessions say, no, an infant baptism is valid. So from our point of view, uh, you really have uh, injured this person with your words and you should apologize. And the person doesn't apologize. And the council decides you're out of the church. Think that's a good program? Sounds a little harsh. Although what a person who would say something like that is doing a Lutheran church, I suppose. Um, that's the first question. You know, you'd probably want to say, you'd probably be happier at another church anyway. Um, uh, but, you know, this is, a, this is a program, and it's been used before. My, my parents, I remember, uh, were part of a process like this one time, and it didn't, uh, didn't result. It resulted in them. Uh, there's some people sitting here uh, who know the story of my parents. Uh, it resulted in my parents being removed from the church. They brought the complaint forward, and the elders thought they were in the wrong, and uh, it removed my dad, actually, from the church. So it kind of backfired on him. But at least it's a process, right, to, to um, uh, it's, at least there's a process that Christ gives us, so at least try to address in an orderly way um, how to handle uh, these divisions and some of the injuries that can occur uh, because of them. How do you heal the injury? Yeah, how do you heal the injury, right? That's some other part, right? Um, Absolutely. Say that again? Pray for healing, right? And maybe some of us can relate in a number of ways for this. This is a process that Christ puts there for us. And sometimes it's work, it works, but sometimes it doesn't. And then the next thing is, is well, you go to the, do the great physician and start there, I suppose. You pray for healing. Go ahead, you had a question. Here comes, here comes the microphone. I just was wondering, because in that passage it said, when a brother sins against you, if... You have a different way of interpreting scripture, and it's not real concrete. I can't really mm-hmm. call that a sin. And I guess right. I would go back to what St. Augustine said, which is an essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity. Yeah. Um, I just don't think that's what he's implying there. So maybe the sin is uh, you've stolen from me something more obviously, something not something to do, something not having to do with doctrine, right? Because right? with doctrine, sometimes you know. Um, have you said, uh, I don't believe in Jesus. Now that's, that's yeah. Right. So maybe this is what Jesus has in mind. Maybe because when you get in the area of doctrine, uh, two two people usually think they're right, and they can point to the other and say, "You're the one who's offending me." No, you're offending me. No, you're offending me. Right. So they both do Matthew 18s on each other. Um, uh, so maybe this is more of, of sort of the, the more pedestrian sins um, against people, stealing, or libel or uh, speaking behind the back, or, you know, real injuries, right? So, uh, but yes, I think definitely Matthew 18 is something we, we wrestle with when we talk about how, what does the Bible say about um, how we are to regard and conduct ourselves with believers with whom we have a different, difference of opinion, even a very strong difference of opinion. What else? Uh, can I, rec- go ahead, yeah? Oh. <laughs> In Paul's second letter, Thessalonians, there appears to have been a problem with uh, idols. And some people were willing to just kind of kick back and live, the, and live the good life, 
And uh, Paul exhorts against that, and then he winds up saying, take note of those who do not obey what we say in this letter, have nothing to do with them, so they may be ashamed. Do not regard them as enemies, but warn them as believers. Yeah. Um, So that speaks very directly. Again, it's a a doctrinal issue, which is really what we're talking about, right? Um, uh, Paul's position and people who seem to be saying something different. Do you get the sense, though, that Paul was dealing with this kind of all the time uh, when he, in these congregations that he'd set up, uh, he'd catch wind that something else was going on, something that uh, he disagreed with mightily and had to respond. And often his language was very strong and condemnatory, um, like in this case. Um, and sometimes it was more pastoral. How do I win these people back? How do I um, uh, speak or write in such a way that they might be inspired to, to unify again? I think you find that more in First Corinthians, where there are these divisions in the church. He refers to them all the time. Um, he's trying to get them back on the same page and not singling out one group from another and saying you're all bad or this group's bad um, and therefore we've got to get rid of that group. You do get that in Galatians, those of you who know Galatians, right? There's definitely a group that Paul does not want part of the Galatians church. He wants them, well, he wants them castrated. That's what he says in, uh, in uh, chapter 5. He wants them out. Um, so, so again, we do have um, Paul as a leader of the church, um, a leader of, of these communities, uh, addressing issues of division over doctrine in those churches. We have it in the very New Testament. The reason we have half the New Testament is because there were these disagreements, and so Paul was moved to write these letters. Isn't that interesting? Thank God for the disagreements, or we wouldn't have a 1 Corinthians. Can you say that? So what is the Spirit up to um, in, in a in a body that does uh, divide and subdivide and disagree and sub-disagree uh, with each other. Um, uh, because sometimes good comes out of it. In, in the case of Paul's letters, uh, we have some of our New Testament because there are these divisions. And Paul's trying to bring clarity to the matter. And uh, um, a, a Christ-like, conf- a Christian confession to the matter. Yeah. It's not speaking directly to conflict, but I think it uh, informs how we deal with each other uh, when we don't necessarily share the same opinion on something. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Very nice. Did, did, what, can you say that passage again? Uh, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Um, this is uh, the prelude, then, to uh, the great Philippian hymn. And this is one of, the, one of the verses that I wrote down as the verses for a potential framework. Um, this one's, I, read, I had this verse read at my wedding. Um, Chris and I together uh, decided that this verse was so central to the Christ-like attitude that uh, we wanted it read at our, at our wedding. Um, and, and so we, we began with um, the very beginning of, of Philippians chapter 2, and then we read all the way through 11. Do you mind doing that? What's, uh, tell me your name again. Yeah. Derek. Derek, can you read the whole thing? Uh, through verse 11. Just, this is the great Philippian hymn, right? This is the Apostle Paul writing to one of his favorite communities. There didn't seem to be any big problem with the Philippian church. It's all kind of one big hug fest here in the letter to the Philippians. You know, I thank God for my every remembrance of you. I mean, he really loves these people, and he doesn't appear to be 
addressing any, any divisions in the church. He just appears to be encouraging them to keep walking the walk they were already on. And so there's these great words at the beginning which uh, appear to take the form of a hymn which would have been known um, in that congregation and in other con- congregations in the early church. So go ahead. Uh, Philippians 2. No, we're gonna, yeah, 2, verse 1 through 11. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right. Preach it, brother. So how does that passage uh, come to bear on the question we're asking? What does the Bible say about how uh, you might get along with people who read the Bible different than you do? How would you apply that one? Go ahead. We need a microphone back there. We're to have the attitude of... um of, of humbling ourselves and, and um, not having contention with them and walking in love. Um, that's hard to do. I remember when I was first a believer many, many years ago, um, I had, you know, the, the devil always attacks you when you're new with pride. You know, I had a lot of religious pride and would, would have contention uh-huh. with other people that didn't believe the same way. And then as I got older and more mature, uh, um, I was shown, you know, you got to not have contention. How I handle that now is that I, I go to a lot of different churches to visit and learn, even Jewish synagogues, to learn. And when I hear something that I think is not right, I don't say nothing because I'm trying to walk in love. I listen. And, you know, and God will show me if it's necessary, if that, they're right or not or, or, or what. But I don't have contention with my tongue. I just listen. That's a great way to put it. Don't have contention with your tongue. Um, You know, listen for a while. Reserve judgment. Um, You mentioned pride, which I understand is kind of the opposite of humility, uh, the opposite of what um, uh, Paul is after here. Right? Lay aside uh, your standards, your needs, your interests for the time. Um, uh, Engage the other person in a way that that at least they think you think that they're more important than you, or what they have to say is more important than what you have to say. This is so, so hard. And then he ties it to Christ's example. Of course, we talked about, and we distinguished between law and gospel. Um, we first looked at Christ as the one who gives everything we need, 
righteousness, innocence, life, and so forth. Uh, but then after we have that and have grasped him that way in faith, what we talked about last week, uh, last night, or what did we read? Then we look at him as an example, and that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's exhorting the believers to have these attitudes, which are Christ-like, have this mind, which is Christ-like. And then he goes on to describe that mind, uh, that Christ-like conduct. The, you know, if anyone had a reason um, to be prideful or anyone who had a reason to lord it over everybody, it's, it's God's son. And Paul talks about how at the very heart of what we believe is this extreme act of humility. And this is the mind we need to have among ourselves. And then what's interesting is that as the hymn continues, um, something happens. There's a therefore in verse 9. Right? It's, it's, yes, of course, this is about how we have to have a Christ-like mind. Yes, of course, it's how we are to put the interests and the concerns of another before our own. Um, it is definitely about those things. And it's definitely about setting up Christ as a model for that. But then in verse 9, there's a therefore. And what's the therefore? God also exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the idea here is that when we have this Christ-like mind, uh, it not only uh, accomplishes something in the fellowship that is maybe eases tensions, helps us understand each other, um, makes it possible for us to be Christ to each other. But more than that, um, when we uh, are Christ to each other, it exalts Christ himself, right? Uh, and maybe even we are exalted, right? In, in our humility, God will lift, up, lift us up also in, in God's way and God's time. So just as Christ was lifted up out of his humility, exalted, um, there's even that promise for us when we humble ourselves in this way. You know, we want to exalt ourselves. That's our nature. What this is saying is humble yourself and don't worry about the exaltation. God will even take care of that. Okay, so there's even a promise here, I think. Uh, let's see, going over here. The uh, passage he read earlier um, ended with, uh, therefore, do not regard them as an enemy, but rather um, warn them as a believer. And so that implies to me that there is a point where we do regard some people as enemies. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. maybe our discussion here is limited to those we consider believers, but at some point... It's not. People begin to uh, say, oh, that person is my enemy now. Yeah. I'll, t- I, I'll and, tell and you this. And, you know, we aren't necessarily yeah. supposed to go kill our enemy, but if our yeah. enemy is going to kill us, trying to kill us yeah. first, we've got to defend ourselves. Yeah. Um, the, the teaching... Uh, uh, love your enemies is for me the hardest teaching to follow. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but it's teaching I've had to learn and I've had to learn it the hard way. <clears throat> um, and the good Lord has been really good to me in teaching me that um, lesson. Love your enemies. It is very hard. Who's your enemy, first of all? What's at stake in, in the, the contest between you and your enemy? What, what is threatened on your side? You know, these are all real um, questions you ask when you encounter an enemy. Um, um, but Jesus says, love your enemies. And what does it mean in the, the specifics of having an enemy or an opponent of some sort or somebody who's 
um, an obstacle or a hindrance, whether it's a human being or some uh, uh, other being. Um, what is it to have an enemy and how do you engage that enemy in the way Jesus uh, talks about with love? Speaking the truth in love, um, what kinds of ways are prescribed for us to engage uh, people who oppose us or people who we think um, uh, are, are the bane of our existence or causing all kinds of trouble or, you know, how Jesus says, love your enemies. How do we do that? It, it's, it's silly. It's the, we don't love our enemies. We can't. And yet he says, love your enemies. How is it possible? Uh, I don't think that it's impossible. <laughs> uh, I think if number one key issue is to look inward and to find out from what I, from the problem that I have, how much am I contributing to mm-hmm. that? Good. <clears throat> the second thing is he doesn't say that we should like them. We don't have to Good. like our enemies. Yes, right. Good. But we certainly can yes. love them. Right. And and by love, the the key aspect of that is prayer. Yeah. And this has happened to me. Where, yeah. Uh, and if you if you pray for your enemies, people that have obviously made themselves very clear that they certainly have trouble with you. Yeah. You know, if you pray for them. You can't hate them. If your prayers are significant to those who disagree with, you you cannot hate them when when you're praying for them. And so uh, it is possible, I think, to love your enemies. At least that's the only way that I have found out. I'm very humbled by what you say. There's a lot of wisdom there. Uh, That's so obvious. And you talk about prayer as the key, and I I can completely relate. I'm just going to share... How many of you know Corey Ten Boom and the Hiding Place and that story, right? She has that story that she tells um, of encountering an, a former Nazi guard after one of her talks in Germany uh, who comes um, uh, to her and introduces himself. And she recognizes him um, from the camp that she survived. Do you know this story? And uh, um, she describes the struggle within her. You know, how here's, the, here's this hated guard um, who was part of the, you know, the, the, the contingent that killed my sister. Um, uh, uh, how am I supposed to regard this person? And you know, who knows the story, right? And what is and what is and I can't do this, right? She as she's having this, yeah, as she's having this encounter in real time, recognizing that I do not want to take this person's hand. Um, she put, she throws up this prayer, then not then not my hand, Christ, but your hand, and she feels her hand going out to take his, right? So this is the idea that you're after in this comment, that, yes, yeah, some people have injured us so, so greatly that it is, by human standards, impossible um, to forgive and to love in the way Christ would have us do it. And in this, this is where the, prayer, the power of prayer uh, comes very obviously to bear, right? You throw it up and you say, I can't do it, Lord, you do it. And he does. At least he starts, yeah. Good. Jan. Uh, I have a little book called Advices and Queries, which is actually uh, like a catechism, but it comes from the Society of Friends in England. I have a friend who is an an elder in the Quaker church there, and she gave it to me. And this is more on a a one-to-one basis rather than these huge things that we've been talking about. But there's a little saying in there. 
think it possible you might be mistaken. And I just love it. <laughs> right? And that would be a form of humility, right? Yeah. The, the, I don't like to think of that possibility, that I might be mistaken. But I might be. And that's, that's a good uh, approach to humility. Now, um, you mentioned in, in the earlier uh, discussion, um, you know, some of these theological debates between Christians um, can be described as sort of artistic uh, license. Is that the word you use? Or artistic expression? And I think there is some gamesmanship. You know, when I have, when I have uh, theological discussions with people, I was just part of one of these on Thursday, and uh, it, was, it was just a little bit ridiculous about how hair-splitting we were becoming. And, oh, I remember this quote, and now there's this quote. And, and, and it really was, in a way, artistic. That it was, it was sport and art to have this very detailed, you know, how many angels on the head of a pin kind of discussions. And there really was nothing emotionally at stake in that conversation. It was very much ex- expression of language in kind of an artistic form, an expression of intellect in an artistic form. Then you also mentioned sophistry, which is related in a way. And when you described it, you, said, you mentioned the word arrogance. So sophistry goes one step further, and that's not just language or debate or, or um, you know, uh, argument for sport, but it's, it's, it, it has with it the arrogance that not only do you know so much more and can craft your language in such a fine way and split hairs better than anyone else can split hairs, but you're better than the other person for being able to do so. And um, uh, Luther actually accused some of his opponents of sophistry. Um, and the reason for doing that was because it didn't appear to him that his opponents had anything emotional at stake in their arguments with him. He did. And then it's no longer just artistic license or sophistry. Then there's something at the heart of what you're arguing for that if it's taken away, you've lost a lot or even everything, right? And uh, just briefly talking with some people at lunch, that I think happened with a lot of people in the ELCA after the votes um, uh, about the resolutions for, for clergy, right? People, some people I talked to, phone calls that I got from friends, you know, people saying I felt like my church leave me. There was real pain, real you know, the sense that for many people, something real had been taken away at the heart of that. So I think that difference is to make clear. Sometimes we can have these debates with each other, but there's nothing emotional at stake or there's nothing at stake, and so there's no emotional attachment to it. And it can be for sport. Um, we have to be careful because sometimes what's sport for us might not be sport for someone else. And so that's why I always like to try and discern if I'm having an argument with somebody, uh, what is at stake for that other person if, if I'm right? <laughs> and if I'm having a, a maybe more heated argument with somebody else, um, what is at stake for me that if the other person's right, I'm going to lose? You know, what's my emotional investment here? So that's always a good thing to discern when you are having disagreements as individuals and as, as a body. What's the one side stand to lose? And what's the emotional stake in what they're going to lose. So, for instance, with the Lord's Supper debate, um, you know, when I argue about Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, I, it's really kind of sport for me. It's really interesting hair-splitting about language and about physics and about um, what the Bible says and about how to interpret it. And if one person is more right than the other, um, uh, maybe it's because I'm so convinced that I'm right, no one can change my mind on it at this point, but, you know, it's, it's that argument or that discussion has become more or less sport for me. Um, but there might be other subjects that where, where if I 
do find that I'm wrong or proved wrong or somebody wins, that I, I will lose something that means a lot and, and that I have an emotional attachment to. So that's a, that's a good thing to discern when you're having these discussions. What is at stake and what is, um, you know, how emotional are, uh, are people holding on? You know, what's the, what are the emotions behind uh, what people are holding on to as they argue for their, their position or understanding? Um, and there was something in, that somebody said that set me off on that tangent. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. The, what you just said was just a... Um you really hit the point of something I've, I've always sort of sensed but never really expressed as well as you did. I was saying, I was working with Roman Catholic brothers in Ghana many years ago, and I realized, and you know, I didn't celebrate communion with them, even though I felt I was right about the transubstantiation issue, <laughs> but because they had a huge emotional stake. If I'd been there, they would have been really distressed. Oh, interesting, yeah. Yes, yeah, right. exactly that yeah, point. I hadn't right. really quite thought of it that way. Yeah. But the point I actually wanted to bring was, uh, following from what Jim was saying earlier, um, the whole idea of loving your enemy. Loving your enemy also means respecting your enemy and making the assumption that your enemy is also trying to do the right thing, which also means respecting your enemy's intellectual base and emotional basis yeah. for whatever belief system they have. And I think engaging with your enemy, um, your, your, if you like, your theological enemy, even within the church, Engaging with your enemy in the same way as you, with that framework you presented this morning, I think could be a very, very practical way of dealing with some of these issues. Yeah. Sometimes it's just hard to respect your enemy, though. You might have to pray for that, too, to respect your enemy. Yes, yeah. exactly. And uh, I'm not so quick, you know, so when I look at some of the enemies that, that we have out there, um, you know, sometimes it's not altogether clear that they're rational uh, human beings who are trying to do, you know, what's best for all humanity or, or whatever. So you know, some enemies are still just enemies. And I like what you have to say. You don't have to like them. Um, I had a roommate uh, who's, uh, who had given his parents a, a lot of trouble um, when he was uh, in high school. And his, he tells a story where his parents uh, once uh, sat him down across the table and um, his dad says, uh, Alan, uh, I just want you to know that your mother and I love you very much. We just don't like you right now. <laughs> you all can relate to that, right? Um, looking at the time. Okay, it's 2 o'clock. I, w- I want to take a break for 10 minutes. Is that all right? So if you want to get some more uh, stuff in the, in the Fellowship Hall, you can. And then 10 after 2, we'll come back and we'll uh, start to wrap up.